Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 17, The Quebec Conference. If you only went by the weather, you'd be inclined to think that the Quebec Conference of October 1864 was a disaster. As delegates from the various British North American colonies arrived in the Canadian capital, wet snow fell all over the city. The snow turned to rain, and it didn't let up for the next several weeks. Quebec's muddy roads and wooden sidewalks weren't up to the challenge. At least it gave something for the reporters to write about. As at Charlottetown, reporters were barred from the actual meetings, even though plenty of reporters had trekked to the Canadian capital from all over British North America. There were even scribes from London and the United States, too. It wasn't every day that you made a nation. The official delegates came from, of course, the United Province of Canada, from New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island. Newfoundland sent two representatives, though they came merely as observers. Almost everyone stayed at L'Hôtel Saint-Louis, the city's grandest accommodation. Most of the delegates this time also brought along their wives and daughters. There were to be balls and dances and dinners, and this was a fabulous occasion to meet and greet and to shop and, who knows, maybe even find a spouse. In a world where politics was still the preserve of men exclusively, women were mostly just observers, though sometimes quite fascinating ones. Quebec City was at the time still the great city of British North America, though it was quickly being overtaken by Montreal. Along with the journalists and the delegates' families, other observers lurked in the background too. The major railways sent their representatives, the Grand Trunk, the Great Northern, and the Great Western. It seems all railways were either great or grand, at least in the eyes of those who named them. These men didn't attend the official meetings, but they loitered in the wings, attending the balls and discussed proceedings behind the scenes. They knew what was at stake, that any union of British North America would involve railways, both the intercolonial railway linking the Maritimes to Canada, and also, maybe not too much later, the farthest reaching railway of them all built all the way to the Pacific. They wanted to be on hand to meet the key players, ingratiating themselves, building friendships that could prove lucrative in the future. Also present, but not playing any real decision-making role, was Lord Monk, Governor General of British North America. The Governor of Nova Scotia came along too. It says a good deal about the nature of democracy in these post-responsible government times that these men were there only to entertain the delegates. Lord Monk hosted small dinner parties for a few delegates at a time all through the conference. Long gone were the days when a governor chose precisely who would be in government and which policies a government would follow. The new country would become, and in a sense remain, a constitutional monarchy. But the monarch's representative had by now firmly become an ornament, symbolic of the colony's history and culture, but real power in British North America, in government and at this conference, lay with the delegates who gathered for three weeks on the second floor of the Canadian Parliamentary Building to hash out a deal. The building itself wasn't much to look at. You might recall that it was built to be a post office and was only called into service because the other parliamentary building had burnt to the ground. 
And this, of course, on top of the fire at the other older parliamentary buildings in Montreal back in 1849. Canadian parliamentary buildings had a nasty habit of catching fire. Heck, the Parliament in Ottawa would also burn in 1916. We really ought to be more careful. At any rate, delegates climbed the stairs to the reading room of the Legislative Council where staff had set up a a long table with ink bottles, papers, and pens. Situated on the cliff overlooking the St. Lawrence, the delegates could at least enjoy a magnificent view over the river of ships in the harbour and l'île d'Orléans in the distance. If, that is, they could see through the rain streaked windows. In moving from the meetings at Charlottetown to now at Quebec, we're essentially switching from the intriguing tryout phase of confederation into the intensity of real competition. This is when things got serious. That isn't to say that there wasn't an outrageous amount of champagne consumed at Quebec. There was. And besides that, the the delegates did a heck of a lot of wooing of wives and daughters and dancing too. It seems that whenever they weren't in the official meetings or in conference amongst those from their own colony, the delegates spent their time socializing in some way or another. They definitely couldn't have been getting their recommended eight hours sleep per night, not over this conference anyway. Yet the soft romance of Charlottetown now transitioned into the hard work of bargaining and decision-making. What was fun and imaginative became serious and detailed. It was now a time for lawyers more than poets. As with Charlottetown, there are no official records to tell us what happened, aside from the sparse notes taken by the official secretary, a man named Hewitt Bernard, who also happened to be John A. Macdonald's secretary. Some think Bernard was overly generous to Macdonald, and this might partly be true, though even others agreed that Macdonald essentially led most of the conference personally, moving many, though not all, of the major resolutions. And that's how it worked. The conference proceeded resolution by resolution. First, one delegate proposed a resolution and it was seconded by another. Then debate followed and possibly other amendments proposed by others. In all, the conference would pass 72 resolutions, which provided the substantial basis of what became the British North America Act passed through the British Parliament in 1867. There would be some modifications, but largely Canada's original constitution emerged out of the Quebec conference. The absolutely best book about this moment is Christopher Moore's wonderfully detailed book, Three Weeks in Quebec, which is, as the title suggests, a history of the three-week conference. And I'm more than a little indebted to him here when I was prepared for this particular episode. But it also leaves us with a dilemma, how to cover what he takes almost 300 pages to detail, in my case, in under half an hour. I'm going to adhere to the organizing principle of asking two questions. First, what did the delegates fight about? What did they disagree on? What principles and practicalities almost upset the apple cart? This is the usual stuff of history, digging inspiration out of the fertile ground of conflict and debate. And there's plenty here to make sense of. But it's also worth asking the opposite and less commonly asked question, what did they agree on? Which resolutions passed quickly and without much debate? What did they not feel it worth to discuss in detail because they all pretty much took it for granted already? Critics often complain that the whole story of Confederation was too pragmatic. It was all about making a deal. 
The fathers of confederation did not debate first principles and set down in stirring prose their views on things like democracy and the rights of man. In a way, this criticism is perfectly accurate. Do the Quebec resolutions and later the British North America Act make for exciting reading and stirring rhetoric? Absolutely not. There is no uplifting rhetoric about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No resolutions begin, we the people. Instead, the delegates sat down to decide if the terms of union were appropriate, were going to work. Most of the discussions centered around issues like the divisions of powers between the general and the local government, or about the composition of the upper house and the lower house. These things matter to the delegates, and they very much matter to how Canada continues to function as a country, but they don't exactly stir up emotions. The reason for this seeming lack, though, can be found in the answer to my second question and the one I'm going to answer first. What did the delegates already agree on? The delegates did not dramatically stake out their democratic and founding principles because they pretty much all agreed on them already. These had been decided 15 years earlier in the fight for responsible government. This wasn't a moment of separation from the mother country. It wasn't a revolution. It was instead part of an evolution. British North America made the great transition into controlling its own affairs in the switch to responsible government. When they won for themselves the Westminster system of responsible government. Here they were, after all, deciding the fate of the northern portion of the continent between themselves with the representatives of the British government on the sidelines. They didn't need, and what's more, didn't want, a declaration of independence full of stirring rhetoric because they already believed they enjoyed the kind of democratic autonomy they desired and deserved. The second reason why the Quebec Conference can seem so pragmatic is because Alone of the colonies in the Americas, British North Americans wanted to remain British. They wanted to be tied to the colonial mother country. The very first resolution called for a federal union under the crown of Great Britain. The third resolution spoke of, quote, our connection with the mother country and the desire to follow the model of the British constitution. Sometimes it could seem that the British were more eager to be rid of their colonists than the other way around. So if you look at moments of national founding and expect to find adolescent rebellion and rejection of parental authority, you end up coming away perplexed by the Canadian story. It isn't that the Fathers of Confederation didn't think they were creating a nation. They did. But they wanted to create a nation within the British Empire. The transition to complete independence in the Canadian case came gradually over the next century, year by year and issue by issue, as each subsequent generation revised its assessment of what counted as independence. A century and a half later, many Canadians find it incomprehensible that their founders could be, as it might now seem, so subservient. Yet, that's not how the 1860s generation saw things. The delegates of 1864 could be quite prickly if they thought a governor or other British official overstepped what was a Canadian decision. They did not lack for a sense of local identity or pride. 
They simply believed that you could create a British North American nation, a bigger Canada, a bigger British North America, and not have to give up its Britishness. When, back in the 1840s, Robert Baldwin and Joseph Howe spoke movingly about wanting British government for the British in North America, they weren't, as some historians occasionally imply, simply using a rhetorical ploy. It wasn't a trick to convince the British to concede responsible government. They genuinely wanted to be more British than the British. Fifteen years later, in 1864, the delegates in Quebec still swam in these waters of political loyalty. They saw the Westminster system as the finest political system in the world. It guaranteed to them, as the oft-repeated phrase had it, the rights of the free-born Englishman. They didn't need some new American-style Bill of Rights because they already had a Bill of Rights, and it had come in 1689 after the Glorious Revolution and on the ascension to the throne of William and Mary. They traced their liberties back to the Magna Carta in 1215. These were parliamentary Democrats of the purest ilk. So, if you're looking to the negotiations at Quebec for the sources of political idealism in British North America, you're just looking in the wrong source. These people didn't want a revolution, nor a fundamental break from the past. What they wanted to do was to build a nation in North America, independent of the United States, and still loyal under the British crown. Okay, so if that's what they agreed on, and an explanation of why the conference can seem so pragmatic, what then did they fight about? For disagree, they did, almost at once. On several occasions over the next three weeks, talks threatened to break down completely. So what then was at stake? As a broad generalization, the disagreements came down to ego and identity, to ensuring that the colonies coming into this political marriage still felt valued and that they were not going to lose their status or identity. That, though, isn't necessarily what they said, though it's the gloss that I would paint over it all. The first place where it almost came asunder was over the Senate, the upper chamber in the new parliament. After a few days of conversation on general matters, the delegates got stuck into a long debate on the composition of this upper chamber. Remember, British North American parliaments were modeled on the British system with an assembly that matched the House of Commons and a legislative council that was meant to represent property and order to play a somewhat similar role to the House of Lords. With the victory of responsible government, most power had now shifted firmly to the assemblies. The United Province of Canada had even made their own upper chamber elective in the mid-1850s. The question at issue was, how many seats this chamber would hold and how they would be distributed between the various regions and colonies. John A. Macdonald proposed an even split one-third between the three regions, Upper Canada, Lower Canada, and then all of the maritime colonies. And this is where things got interesting. Some in the Canadas, George Brown among them, thought that there still might be a maritime union that preceded confederation with the various maritime colonies entering the new nation just as one of the three regions. But this directly attacked the individual identities of the maritime colonies. And then there was the matter of Newfoundland. 
Yes, the delegates at Charlottetown had indeed talked about a one-third split in the upper house, but that was before Newfoundland sent delegates to the talks. Surely, the Maritimers then needed more seats in this chamber to at least account for the extra colony if Newfoundland was to be there too. Debate over this motion went on for days, all through the end of the first week and over that first weekend into the following week. The Prince Edward Island delegates in particular felt threatened by their small numerical status in the new institutions of the federal government. One PEI delegate feared that the whole Confederation talks might fall apart on this issue. In the midst of the daily wranglings, the delegates and many others kept going to special dinners in the evenings, and there was even a huge ball on the Friday night, with all of the delegates dancing the night away, all except old Taché, the ostensible head of the Canadian coalition government. As the night wore on, French and English guests talked to each other in that smattering of broken language that you might call Franglish, speaking more loudly to be understood and no doubt convinced with each extra glass of champagne that they really were getting the hang of it. Back at the negotiating table on the Saturday and dismayed at the small progress they were making, the delegates agreed to meet for even longer hours in session, but still they reached no deal before the Sunday break. The impasse seemed to get better only after it got worse. Andrew MacDonald from Prince Edward Island even brought up the idea of equal representation for each of the former colonies, something along the lines of the way the American Senate with its two senators per state worked. It might be that this idea with its unappealing American Republican reference is what finally got the other maritime delegates to find a compromise. The American experience always hovered in the background in Quebec as a tale of what not to be, as an example of federalism ruined through civil war, of too democratic and overly demagogic excess. By midweek, the delegates finally agreed to create an upper house with three different and equal sections, but with Newfoundland treated separately. It can seem odd that the delegates spent so much time fighting over such a small matter. The upper house was not going to be a source of major power. This was not going to be the place in the national government that powerfully represented regional interests. One of the reasons we know this is because one of the next resolutions that passed, again proposed by John A. Macdonald, determined that the national government, not the local governments, would choose those who sat in the upper chamber. And they would be appointed not elected. And while this undemocratic method of selection has since come uh, to be why so many criticize the Canadian Senate, it's also an indication of how important the Fathers of Confederation felt that the upper chamber was going to be, which is not very. Power in a responsible government came from the assemblies, from the House of Commons, from the people ultimately. To have made the Senate elective would have granted it authority. By making it appointive, the delegates at Quebec said that it was not going to be a major source of authority. And by making it appointive by the national government, they also said it was not to truly represent regional interests either. The whole fuss, I think, comes down to identity. The Maritimers knew that they were giving up a lot of their former identity to join Confederation. What, they wanted to know, would the Canadians give up for them? 
and to no one did this matter more than the delegates from Prince Edward Island. No sooner did the delegates reach a deal on the upper house than they turned to the composition of the lower house, the House of Commons, and here too, Prince Edward Island was the squeaky wheel. George Brown was the mover of this resolutions because this was what he had been fighting most of his political career to achieve, representation by population. Brown proposed to create a House of Commons consisting of 200 seats. Canada East would receive 65 seats, a kind of baseline. Each other district received their own seat totals in proportion to the Canada East numbers. That meant Brown's Canada West, with 36% more residents, would receive 89 seats. Gone would be the days of parity in the union between Canada East and Canada West, Lower Canada and Upper Canada. The other colonies received their own seat totals also in proportion to their population levels, 19 going to Nova Scotia, 15 for New Brunswick, 7 for Newfoundland, and 5, 5 for little old Prince Edward Island. And there was the rub, only five seats. It was an indignity, such a, a tiny number for the proud Prince Edward Islanders to take, a pittance in the otherwise large house. It was, of course, fair and democratic, but it still rankled. And so even though the Canadians had never made representation by population a secret, even though this principle had been as firm and clear as George Brown's resolve, several of the Prince Edward Island delegates nevertheless decided to make this their last stand. They claimed that representation by population is not applicable here, as the colony was giving up, quote, its self-government and individuality. Another threatened that PEI, quote, would rather be out of the Confederation than consent to this motion. We should have no status. Still, other PEI delegates, Premier Gray especially, they were embarrassed by their colleagues. They knew that the whole issue had already been conceded back at Charlottetown. But the Islander holdouts didn't care. Five seats just weren't enough. They risked losing their whole identity, being swamped in a sea of representatives from the other colonies. And what's more, the whole issue which could most entice them to give this up, the one issue that plagued island politics, the land question, was nowhere to be found at the conference. Several island delegates claimed that at Charlottetown, the Canadians had promised money, 200,000 pounds no less, to help buy up the lands from the landlords and then sell them back to the tenants. But somewhere over the last month, the money disappeared. People forgot or changed their minds. It's not clear which. And so the island delegates faced just the smallness of their own position, likely to continue in perpetuity in Confederation. And they stuck out on these issues that had otherwise already been settled and on which they could exert little influence. Unfortunately for PEI, the others didn't care enough and they voted down any PEI attempts to bargain for extra seats. The new confederation would have a House of Commons that worked along the principle of the Westminster style based on representation by population. There was no other way to have brought George Brown into the coalition. His resolution passed and the delegates moved on. Though whether they are going to keep the Prince Edward Island delegates with them was another matter altogether. The next 
major hurdle came as the delegates went through the exhaustive task of delineating which powers would go to which level of government. The new nation was going to be a confederation, a joining together of the various colonies. And although some involved, especially people like John A. Macdonald and Charles Tupper and even George Brown, they might have wanted to simply create a single unified state, as with Great Britain, with only one level of government, merely one national parliament. This simply wasn't possible. For the French Canadians, and also for some of the Maritimers, it mattered that local governments what would later be called the provincial governments, would continue to control issues of a local nature. This is where novelty entered the conference. The British North Americans were happy to follow precedent, building on British experience. But here, they had to invent, and all the time watching as the other main federation in their sphere, the United States, continued to blast itself to pieces. They started first with the powers of the general government, granting to that level of government all of the major powers they associated with national preponderance, power over trade and commerce, customs and excise. Remember, this is the the largest source of all government revenues at this time when direct taxes and income taxes were almost unthinkable in British North America. That power would go to the, the larger government. And other matters, including banking, the military, and immigration. Beyond just listing powers, which they did extensively and in much more detail than I'm going to do here, they also decided to make the general government, what we now call the federal government, the source of all powers not specifically designated in writing. It was to have the reserve powers, that is, all powers not specifically reserved for the local governments. Another resolution granted the federal government the power of disallowance, that is, the power to disallow bills passed by the lower level of government. This was very much in keeping with the way power worked in the British Empire, with London maintaining the right to disallow colonial legislation. The Prince Edward Islanders knew all about this with their attempts to solve the landlord question, and many of which had been disallowed. So this would seem to be a lot. It would seem to have granted to the general government, in the context of its time, the main source of government authority. Indeed, for someone like George Brown, the local governments were to be not much more than overgrown municipalities. But the centralizers like Brown and John A. Macdonald did not represent the final word. The local governments, that is the provinces, maintained control over all matters of a a local nature. And this very much mattered to George Etienne Cartier and the French Canadians, the power to legislate on education, hospitals and charities, local works and penitentiaries, for example. This would guarantee to French Canada the power to control its culture and language and local institutions free from the influence of the upper Canadians. The Maritimers were divided on this issue, with some wishing for a more legislative union and others liking the way the stronger local governments would allow them to maintain their provincial identities, and especially the legislatures which they had enjoyed now for so many generations. It was at this point that a telling debate emerged. Edward Chandler from New Brunswick rose to say that the whole scheme was unbalanced. The resolutions passed so far, he said, threatened to create a legislative union, a unitary state, 
in practice, even if not in fact. The federal government monopolized all of the major powers. It would rule at its whim and negate the local governments. Interestingly, the French Canadians, who had a lot at stake on this issue, seemed to have stayed silent during this debate and listened while those like Tupper and the later Ontario Premier Oliver Mowat replied. Mowat was an interesting case. He was John A.'s former law clerk, but he had since become a reformer. And later, as Premier of Ontario, he would become John A. Macdonald's nemesis. Mowat and Tupper claimed to be satisfied that the local governments would maintain and promote local interests. In the end, they were more than correct, but it does reveal something about the negotiations themselves and the views of the time that the resolutions passed at Quebec seemed to some to give all the major powers to the federal government. Now, constitutional experts have wrangled over all these issues for years, probably for too long and in too much detail. It pits centralizers versus decentralizers, those who believe Canada was established with a strong central government versus those who believe the powers were more evenly distributed. You can find critics and promoters of all political persuasions on both sides, some arguing that the original Canadian constitution really created a strong central government, a fact only later betrayed by judicial decisions, and you can find others who claim that, no, the Fathers of Confederation knew all along that Canada would become a weak federation with two equal levels of government, both sovereign in their own areas of jurisdiction. My own view is that the reason you can find multiple perspectives is because the Fathers of Confederation didn't agree amongst themselves. And it was in their interest, it was in the interest of actually getting a deal done to leave the matter unsettled and open to interpretation. Each delegate could read what it wanted into the resolutions and hope that history would prove them right and that they themselves would play, play some role in shaping that history to their own ends. At the conference itself, the rain somewhat dried up, but the delegates continued to hammer out resolutions and continued to dance and socialize all through the night. The Canadian financial whiz Alexander Galt came in to handle the, the financial side of the new confederation. His proposals mattered and would later be brought up again and again. The Confederation Project threatened the, the financial viability of the local, that is, provincial governments. The new national government would take over the main source of government revenue at this time, customs and excise. How then would the provincial governments pay for themselves? Galt essentially proposed that they live off of subsidies from the national government based on their population. The national government would take over all of their accumulated debts. Moving forward, the provinces could rely on transfer payments based on their population levels. Now, in theory, the provinces also had the power to levy direct taxes, but this was almost unheard of in British North America to do something so radical as to create an income tax, for example. The conference was now approaching its end, but more resolutions ensured that the legislature was to be housed in Ottawa, that it would operate in French and English, and various other matters, including the status of Indians, that is, Indigenous peoples, that that, that would fall under the purview of the national government. This was the only mention at the conference of the original inhabitants of the land that would be Canada. No bands were invited to the conference, and no special status was provided. Though in a sense, by placing Indian affairs with the national government, 
the Quebec resolutions enshrined a unique status within the Federation to Indigenous Affairs in ways that none could have predicted at the time. Almost last, but definitely not least, the delegates resolved to construct an intercolonial railway linking the Canadas with the Maritimes. And this development project shows up as a resolution and essentially would become part of the constitution of the new country. For New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, this was the essential precondition of entry. As debate wrapped up in Quebec, the delegates decided to follow precedent and take their show on the road. Just as in the Maritimes, they would close up shop at Quebec and then head out by rail and boat, first to Montreal and then upriver to Ottawa, the new capital, and then by rail all around Upper Canada. The conference had been a, a secretive affair, and so they used the various public events along the way to leak some of the details of the agreement and to show their resolve and unity. The oyster supper statesmen, as one skeptic called them, headed out to woo the Canadian public. In Montreal, Darcy McGee took center stage, the great Irish orator coming into his own. What had happened at Quebec, people wanted to know. Well, McGee would tell them. The delegates, quote, had not gone into the chamber to invent any new system of government, but had entered it in a reverent spirit to consult the oracles of the history of their race. Now, as an aside here, I'll say that people in the 19th century talked a lot about race in ways that tend to make us a little uncomfortable now, so we should, we should probably pass over that, but they, they tended to mean, in this case, something like culture. McGee went on, they had gone there to build upon the old foundation. The crowd cheered here. Not a, not a showy edifice for themselves, but a piece of solid British masonry. And there you have it. The creation, as McGee put it, of not a new country, but an old one. Of something new on the old foundation. More than one critic remained skeptical of the grand talk. A Prince Edward Island paper thought all the talk was frothy nonsense. They dream dreams, they see visions, Bubble blowing is all, is there all. If you just listen to the talk, the paper said, quote, you would think that the, the Shubenacadie River would be turned into molasses. Tea would grow in the barrens and tobacco would be exported from Chizetcook as soon as the union was consumed. But one thing was certain. The delegates had come up with a deal. They passed the resolutions. Prince Edward Island was not pleased, or at least some of the delegates were not. Still, the other men who had sat around the table at Quebec, peering out through the rain-streaked windows onto the St. Lawrence, they left the Canadian capital convinced that they were building something grand, a, a new nation firmly upon solid British foundations. They were going to need this confidence and this determination. For although everything had been moving ahead swiftly up until this point, with the Charlottetown wooing followed soon after by the hard work at Quebec, after these meetings, events would slow. It would switch from a sprint to a marathon. All of the delegates imagined wrapping up the whole show by the next year, 1865 at the latest. We all know that was not to be the case. This podcast is not called 1865 and all that, uh, if you need one clue in particular. A lot of events would get in the way. The first one actually had already occurred, and I've just neglected to tell you. And that's where we'll start next week. For even while the delegates gathered in Quebec, American Confederate sympathizers decided, 
yet again, to try to draw Britain into the war and attack the North from Canadian soil. And this plot, carried out in the town of St. Albans, just across the border in Vermont from Canada East, was the most daring yet. It involved a bank heist gone wrong, and all of the perpetrators fled back into Canada to avoid American wrath. That's when it became a Canadian problem. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to share the show with a friend and help us build the community of listeners. So thanks so much for your help. Next week, we're heading to Vermont to meet the daring Confederates who took over a whole American town, if only briefly, and then rapidly fled to Canada for refuge. This was possibly the biggest war scare yet, especially after American troops crossed the border, ignoring Canadian sovereignty to track down the raiders. Until then, though, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. Mm -hmm.